Hey, welcome again to the One Together podcast. I'm Heather Maltman, and after having done some bloody weird entertainment jobs, really, I've found myself wanting something more, something deeper, something a little bit more real because, let's face it, the entertainment world is full of gossip and quite a lot of trash. So, uh, yeah, this was all created in the hopes of giving you something a little bit more meaningful and a little bit deeper so that you can actually live a slightly better life. So if this is your first episode with us here, our hope is to create one consciousness by sharing our stories that have happened for us and not to us. Okay, fine. I get it. One consciousness, it can sound like a bit of a wank. So before I lose you at that one comment, I want you to stick around because these are true stories. Everything that we share on this podcast comes from a real place. All of my guests We laugh together, we cry together, we sing, and, well, yeah, we do kind of talk crap a lot. But, you know, most importantly, every single guest speaks from the heart and it's all in the hopes of inspiring you. So every single week I ask a question to the universe, to you, to myself, to everyone. It's usually something that I feel we're all asking ourselves in some way, but we haven't been able to find an answer. So I'm going to shush and ask a question and tell you about who our amazing guest is today. Well, before I raise a question, actually, I want you to imagine something for a second because it has to do with our next guest. And I think in order to really understand what she's been through, you need to put yourself in her shoes. You're at university. You're studying hard. You go to a party. You wake up in hospital. And you've just been told that your limbs might need to be cut off. How many questions are you asking yourself right now? Why? Where? What happened? You don't remember anything. You've been in a coma. You know something isn't right. Things feel weird. You can't quite make heads or tails of anything. That is who our next guest is. Her name is Mon Murphy. She is a silver medal Paralympian and she is an absolutely amazing Australian. I am so glad that she survived this horrific incident that happened to her because she's so freaking positive. She's always thinking about what she can do next and how she can learn from life. And you wouldn't even know that she's an amputee. You wouldn't know because she doesn't act like she deserves to be given special treatment. She just gets after it day in, day out. My favorite part of this conversation that you're in for is Wait until she answers the question about seeking justice for the person who potentially put her in this position in the first place. Prepare to have your mind blown from the beautiful woman in Brisbane. Enjoy. The following podcast contains coarse language and makes reference to suicide. This podcast also contains discussions of medical procedures that may be distressing to some listeners. I'm sitting next to... I would believe one of the most incredible Paralympians I've ever met in my life. And this particular woman told me that she fell from a five floor balcony Mm -hmm. of her uni complex and survived. Like that makes me sweaty. (laughs) (laughs) Like just to think about like and picture that moment. And before we even get to the story of like what happened that night, I want to first ask you, how did you get that cat? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I was in Melbourne and I moved out on my own. I'd started training for the world championships in 2015 
And I decided that um, the housemates I were living with weren't really um, appropriate for my training environment. They were having a oh, lot of really? parties and oh, um, yeah. yeah, a lot of things. I was like, oh, this isn't going to work with my early morning. So yeah. I'd moved out and yeah, living on your own is a little bit lonely. It is, isn't it? So, it gets a bit weird. <laughs> it gets a bit quiet. Um, How is it those days when like you literally don't talk once yes. and you get to the end of the day and you're like, I haven't spoken at all. And I'll get to like a weekend or I'll go home for like a family event and my throat will get sore within a day because I'm talking to people yes. again. <laughs> you haven't used your yeah. voice in so long. You've forgotten how to do it. Yeah. Oh, that's so true. So I thought um, that was a good excuse to, you know, run with my parents about getting yeah. a cat. And um, they just said, make sure it's a rescue. Yeah, there's yeah. lots of cats out there that need yeah. good homes. Little kitties. So um, I waited to the spring. That's when all the little kittens are around. And then I ended up going with a nine-month-old ginger female cat who... And look at her! I called Rio. Rio! Which was very premature because I hadn't even qualified for the Rio Paralympics. <laughs> I like that. You were really on your way. <laughs> I was just hoping I wouldn't have to change your name to Tokyo. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's... Look, let's just dive right in. Let's get stuck into how that all happened because... I mean, if you yourself are going through anything in your life right now, anything around like breakups in relationships or, oh, I might have to move out or I'm so pissed that I'm having this fight with someone I work with right now or my toilet stopped flushing. (laughs) Wait till you hear this story because it's going to really put your life into very clear perspective. Run us through how you ended up at this party to begin with because- I, I just go, just you go. Um, so yeah, the, the short, the quick version to how I got there was, um, I grew up in Canberra mm-hmm. as a very, um, keen and active swimmer. I loved swimming. Um, I loved the friends, the community, the family. It was something I was good at. I always wanted to make an Olympics, wanted to be a gold medalist, just wanted to be my best and be the best, but yeah. I never, never got there. I would always get sick or stressed out. I could make the qualifying times in training. I just could not get up behind the blocks and do it under pressure. Yeah. And that stress would just manifest into some sort of sickness. I just sort of got really tired of it because for three years I missed that qualifying time by about two tenths of a second. So it just, it got a bit too much. I stopped believing in myself, stopped thinking I could actually do this. Um, And when I got to the end of year 12, it was like, well, now you've got to actually make some adult decisions. You've got to go to university. You've got to get a job. You know, there's a timeline that you have to stick to here. So I had a gap year. I traveled around Europe yeah, um, for six months. And then I went, moved to Melbourne to study furniture design. Really? Yeah. Yeah. It's a bit different. That brings us to 2014. And it was about three weeks into the course I was working as a resident assistant, I was studying yeah. and I was living um, on campus and we had sort of like a meet and greet. I remember walking downstairs and it sort of all goes black from about six o'clock that night. Uh, I remember we, we had some pizza and I just don't remember anything after that. And I woke up a week later in the intensive care unit at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. And when I woke up, my parents, the first people I saw were my mum and my dad. And I knew, I didn't have any sort of hallucinations or visions while I was in the coma. It was an induced coma. Right. And so I just woke up, but I knew I'd been asleep for too long. Like, right. it wasn't like you've overslept and you've woken up and gone, shit, my alarm, I'm meant to be at work. Yeah, and you feel it, a bit groggy. It was yeah. like, oh God, what? 
what's happened what has happened so you knew the minute you woke up something was something right. was wasn't right yeah. and were you in any pain at this stage or it wasn't you know a localized pain where it was like i've rolled my ankle or i've hurt this and part. you can it pinpoint was just, where it's coming from it was just like this weight on my body like i could i knew my body was responsive and i was trying to talk because all I, all i could think was i don't remember it's like i just don't remember how i got here my parents are divorced they don't live in melbourne One's in Canberra, one's in Sydney. So I'm like, what the hell are they doing in the same room in Melbourne? (laughs) Um, And I tried to talk, but I still had a lot of tubes going in my mouth and things. So I couldn't speak. And Were they like tubes for breathing? Yeah. So I was on life support for that week. Wow. I got the nurse to bring over like a pen and paper. Mm -hmm. And then that's when I realized that both my arms were plastered. So I couldn't even write. And I was getting so frustrated at this point because, you know, my parents had no idea that I didn't remember what happened or anything like that. So, yeah, yeah, after the longest game of, like, charades and Pictionary, they finally figured out that I just didn't... You didn't understand what was going on. And that's when Dad told me that I'd fallen from my fifth floor balcony. And that's all he said. Like, he said, you know, you've you've had this fall, um, but we're here and you're going to be okay. And from Can you remember in that moment when you found out it was the fifth floor what your brain started doing like I think from from memory it was just I just like cried it was just sort of you know shock uh, yeah it was just that shock and you know this was the first time they brought me out of the coma so from that moment it I went from my memory I went back to sleep it was sort of like having that realization that's what happened great I can go back to sleep now um a lot of that day is very scattered which they said my memory would be very scattered for the first day or two coming out of the coma understandably Um, yeah um the next day i had a really terrible night that night in icu obviously waking like in a lot of pain um waking up and going back to sleep and there's only a few things i do remember of them taking out the tubes and they gave me a bath at one point but i remember looking at my right leg and thinking why is my foot bandaged in a point like, you see when people band, like, if you roll your ankle and they bandage it yeah. at a 90-degree angle. Yeah. And I remember looking at it going, why is it bandaged in a point? Because I could feel, like, I could feel my body. I could feel my arms. I could feel my legs. Um, and, but my foot wasn't pointing up. And so I was like, they bandaged it into a point. Why have they done that? Yeah. And the next morning, um, the doctors came in to see me in the ICU and they were just the way they were talking, they were just treating me with like kid gloves. Like I was this bubble that was about to burst. And I was just really confused why they were being so sensitive Mm. with me. Mm. And then they walked away and I heard the words foot and amputation. And I turned, like I looked over at the nurse and I said, I was like, did I lose my foot? And like the color just drained from her face. Because she's realized that she's going to be the one to tell you. Yeah. And at that moment, my mum and her sister walked in. They uh-huh. came around and she just looked at them and said, I'm so sorry. I thought she knew. And mum rushed over to my bed, held my hand. Um, and like in that moment, I knew that it was true. Mm-hmm. And they had actually told me, the doctors had told me the day before. They'd said to my parents, we're going to tell her, but she's very likely to forget. For me, that is my memory yeah. of how I found out. Yeah. Um, that I remember. And mum, so mum came over and she's holding my hand and she said that my, my jaw saved my brain because I broke my jaw in two places. 
So what do you mean? So when I landed, yeah, um, it was on. I landed on a glass roof. It was a glass house. Oh, I remember below. you telling me this. Yeah, it was yeah. a glass house below the um, the balcony, and so that it, kind of broke your fall. It broke the fall, right? and it, it broke yeah. the fall in stages. So I think what happened is like I landed on my um, my two knees because I tore all the ligaments in my left knee and I shattered the tibia plateau in the right knee. I'd shattered all that. Yeah. Um, and then, so I must've landed on like both my knees and then forward onto my jaw. Oh, because you fell here on the front of your face. Yeah. That's taken the brunt of the hit rather than the back of your cranium. Yeah. yeah. Mum just said, you know, your jaw saved your, um, your brain and my foot saved my spine. Um, Unbelievable. Really? Yeah. Cause it just, it would have hit the glass and, just being, as I sort of fell down, it would have just ripped open. So from, from there, I had to have a lot of like psych assessments, trauma psych, all that. Mm-hmm. And they ruled that it wasn't a suicide because that's what was thrown around initially. And so that was a fun thing to have to deal with for the first sort of few weeks because there was a lot of questions surrounding the accident. I didn't remember. Nobody saw. It was like, what happened? What do you mean nobody saw? Was nobody in your apartment when it happened? Um, from what I was told, my roommate had already gone to bed. She'd passed out um and yeah no one was no one was with me so we don't know um they put it down to being a, a drink spiked has to be yeah has to be. and that's like- what for me there's just this big question mark as to mm. what fills in that gap and that's what makes I think if, if the most sense, so the only way you can relate to, cause when you've, the minute you started telling the story, I was like hundred percent, it's a drink spike yeah. because if you've ever had your drink spiked, mm. you know that feeling. Yeah, and I have had my drink spiked before, like yeah, when I was same. in Europe. Yeah, so right, it's, yeah. you know, it, and I told the doctors that I'm like, this has happened before, this is what it was like. And they said, well, it's, it's all adding up. So mm. they didn't do any blood alcohol tests or drug tests because I, when I landed, I cut my neck open quite severely. So that was the most life threatening. Um, wow. Which like, is my good, lovely scar on my neck. So they were worried that that hit the windpipe, which I did miss. Um, but when they were taking the glass out, they were very close to nicking the carotid artery, which would have just... That's the main one, right? Yeah. That's the big guy. That's the big guy. So um, <sighs> we were lucky to avoid that because I would have just bled out otherwise. So, you know, when you say um, that whole idea of like, you know, things happen for a reason or... The universe. All that. It's like there was this one moment when I fell where like the whole world was against me. But in the way that I landed and everything that happened from there... The whole world was working for me. Yeah. And it's just so bizarre how um, everything from that moment of landing, um, I was wearing a foot brace on my left foot mm-hmm. because I'd torn the ligaments in it a few months earlier. And that's why that foot is still on like part of my body. I was wearing what? a brace all over it. You're kidding. And then the um, where the accident was, was across the road from the hospital. I was in the hospital within six minutes. Holy shit. And then the surgeon that just happened to be on that night you know, I don't think I could have had a better surgeon because um, the way that he did the surgeries and the way that I've, I've healed up so quickly, like I didn't have any complications with any of the surgeries or any of the recovery period. So it's like everything yeah. that went from from the moment I land to where I am now, it's just like everything's everything worked for me in a way. Mm. Like I had to take those opportunities and I had to push myself and obviously like I've had to train incredibly hard to get where I am. But some of the ways the opportunities have presented themselves, it kind of just really makes you think. Yeah. <laughs> um, I heard this quote recently um, that you just sort of reminded me of. Uh, this guy was talking about how there's a time for sadness and there's a time for happiness and there's a time for pain 
and there's a time for excitement and moving forward with your life and there's a time to be Mm. poor and there's a time to be rich and no person is able to ever avoid those times. Yeah. There was a time for the universe to be against you Mm. and then there was a time for the universe to be completely in your corner. Yeah. But I think like with that, (sighs) with that quote, you don't know what true happiness is if you haven't been through true sadness. Oh yeah. You know, and like, it's, it's never great to go through those times, but they're Mm. what make us appreciate the good times. And then from what I've learned and what I've learned, um, interacting with other people with who've been through trauma is that the people who try to just keep running Mm -hmm. from the trauma, like something happens and they don't take the time to acknowledge it and work through it, which is incredibly hard. And it's definitely not something you can do on your own. You need so much support. There's a lot of people who just keep pushing forward. If you don't take that time to really understand what's happened, it's going to hold you back from moving forward. And then you will hit those roadblocks further down the track and they're really hard scary emotions to confront but if you don't take the time to really get into those emotions you won't always be able to appreciate the good ones for what they're all worth you know I was 19 so a lot of people it's hard for them to yeah it's really hard for a lot of people to really understand exactly what people are going through and did a lot of people assume that you were just being selfish or like being at a you know university living on campus People just knew about what had happened. You know, when you are that young, it's really hard to know how to help and what to do. You know, and I just needed so much there because I could not get out of bed. I was always surprised by how many people stepped up. And um, if there were people who couldn't come to the hospital, they saw me once I left. And I think for my family, they didn't know who my new circle of friends were. They were always very touched by how many people did come in and see me and how many people still still hung around. So, What were your ways in continuing to move forward like you know in those dark moments when you're like this is never going to get any better this is never I'm never going to get used to this I'm never going to be able to feel good about it what were your ways of continuing to move forward like pre-accident I came across this sort of quote or thing that I read that was something like emotions can only last like a minute Mm -hmm. and after that well like if you're crying or something and you feel that wave of emotion that sadness it only technically lasts about a minute and then after that you're just holding on to it and you're manifesting it and building it so I knew that when those emotions would come I just had to let like ride the wave whenever I had like stitches taken out after surgeries or things or anything unpleasant mum would hold my hand and just say scream it out you know just like let that out if it hurts just let it out and I had a lot of questions initially about the accident because I always think that when something happens you need to be able to learn from it and I was like, how can I learn from this yeah. if I can't remember it? If I don't know what happened, how do I make sure this doesn't happen again? Yeah. You know, and so that was really, really tough to try and um, understand how I ended up there. So literally, I, I just woke up in a nightmare. Yeah. But I always knew from the beginning that I was incredibly lucky. I didn't have a whole lot of knowledge of people with disabilities, but I knew that my back, my spine wasn't damaged and that my brain was working. And I knew that, as weird as it sounds, limbs are replaceable. There are prosthetics. Yeah. You know, they are replaceable. And so I knew that things would be okay. When they would be okay, Mm -hmm. that was the unknown. Because I'd had this massive fall, it was just sort of like, surely there's something missing here. Surely I do have some sort of brain damage or surely there is some internal 
something rather going wrong. And every time the doctors would come in, it would sort of like hold my breath and be like, okay, what are they going to tell me now? Like, have they found something? It was, it was like, how could I get away so lucky? And I think when I got to leave hospital, that was just the biggest sigh of relief because like, I'm, I am okay now. It's, it's just going to take time. Mm-hmm. And that's the frustrating thing is it's just so slow. Yeah. Like, bones don't heal overnight. Scars don't heal over years. They heal over decades. And yeah. it just takes so long. And that's the frustrating thing is you start to feel a little bit better. Yeah. But it's like my body wasn't there yet. Or, you know, my mind was coming to terms with what had happened and was like, all right, I want to start planning this. I want to get back to uni. I want to get on with my life. But my body's like, yeah, no, we're not there yet. Or I'd wake up in the morning and I'd feel really good. But a few hours later, I'd be so exhausted Mm. from just sitting up. (laughs) Yeah. And it was just having grown up so active, it was so frustrating. Yeah. Because I just wanted it to, I'd look out the window and, you know, had this beautiful view of Melbourne. And I'm Mm. like, I'm not, I'm missing so much that patience and it's the same with anything like when we go through um breakups or you know life changes or we lose someone close it's it's not an instant fix you can have those moments of clarity where you're like no I made the right choice and this is good for me in the long run but it's doesn't mean you're going to feel good about it right then and there yeah totally because it it just takes time so what did what did they have to do like what what kind of surgeries are we talking here like they wouldn't have been small right like no so when I woke up They'd already um, gone in and repaired my jaw. Okay. Which meant my face was the size of a balloon. Oh, It was so huge. Um, And they'd sewn up all the scars. So I got two, the two big scars on my chest. What are they from? Are they from the glass? glass. Yeah. So So we're talking giant shards of glass were... Yeah, just like... Stuck in you? Yeah, so I had like... you and then left these giant gaping wounds? It just would have been like glass splinters everywhere, so they had to pull them out. And literally nine months later, I was swimming and I stopped on the wall and my coach is like, what are you doing? And I had a splinter under my tongue, like a glass splinter, and it had finally surfaced and come out. I had a splinter in my finger that lasted about a year, a year and a bit. Well, to give you an idea of like what the scarring looks like, do you mind if I describe it? Yeah, I'd be interested to see how you do. Okay, <laughs> let me see if I can work this out. So, and this is, I don't know if this is going to sound strange, but I actually find them incredibly beautiful. I know that probably sounds really weird. I think they're so interesting. I f- that's what I mean. Like the way the skin has healed, it almost looks like a burn mark. But I think then, it looks like marbling. You know yeah. how like you get a marble, like a granite marble bench top? Yeah. And they're really expensive. Yeah. It's like skin marbling. They're, they're, <laughs> they're actually like really beautiful though. Like I mm. can't imagine you not having them there. And yeah. they, they look like these really well-placed birthmarks. Yeah. And they're, they're really, um, they're very smooth, but they're numb. Oh, because so like, oh, of the scar tissue. So you yeah, can't feel that? I can't. So like I'm scratching one oh. now and I can't feel that. See, I have the tiniest one under my neck here from where I had throat surgery, right yeah. underneath my hairy chin. See, yeah. I've got like a weird oh, yeah. goat hair there. <laughs> it's funny, like mine, my scarring, obviously, the, mm. it's tiny, tiny little scar. Yeah. But it's the same thing, like you know, on my neck here, I can't feel when I do yeah. this. But mine get really itchy and I then I try to scratch oh. them and I can't feel it. So I can't like... You can't work out. I can't scratch it. them. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the worst mozzie bite ever. Yeah, yeah, it really is. a really mean mozzie bite. Yeah. But you've literally got one, if your heart was on your like right hand side up in the top corner near your armpit that's where one is like mm-hmm. and it's almost in the shape of a heart sort of shape which it's is like a cool. y like the initial yeah. mind was it was like a y like a y that went down yeah. and then and then I've the other one the is like collarbone 
Oh, I didn't even see that one. It's got the broken collarbone up the top, and then there's the last one. There's like an S shape just across the left-hand side there, and then you've got the one on your neck. Yeah. Yeah. When you first got them, did you look at them and think, this is ugly? So were you afraid? They didn't. um, Like when they stitched them up, they actually used a staple gun. So it wasn't like a needle and thread with stitches. Literally like they got a stapler and went bang, 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 bang. bang, bang. So I had just metal lines all the way across. You're kidding. And it was all like pussy and bloody and gross. I looked like Frankenstein. And then this is with a balloon face because I've just had jaw surgery. So I remember one of my first nights in hospital, I had a dream that I had to get up and get back to the campus because we had a meeting, like a workers meeting. And um, I just remember that I did get up out of bed and out of the hospital and walked back. But I thought I looked like Frankenstein and I thought I had these scars all over my face as well. And that's what everyone kept telling me was you're still beautiful. You still have your face. And I remember thinking, I don't care. I don't, I don't care. I'm alive. I don't care if these scars are all over my face. At least I'm alive. It kind of annoyed me that the one thing out of this whole situation that everyone seemed so intent on reminding me was that I was still beautiful. I knew how lucky I was. And then even though, and I knew that I had my family and that support there. So I knew that we were going to get through this. Um, They'd already taken care of everything at uni. They'd deferred me. Um, They'd done everything. So that all I had to worry about was just getting better. I just had, I really had as much time as I needed. You know, that was so paramount to my recovery. Uh, And nothing else mattered. I just knew in the long run, I was going to be okay. I knew that if I did work hard at something, I was going to achieve it. The only thing was that what I was going to have to work hard at was learning to walk. Like if we, if we quickly go through the list of injuries, there was (sighs) broke my jaw in two places. I cut open my neck. I broke my collarbone. I tore the tricep muscle off the, the bone in my right arm. I broke three ribs, punctured two lung, like both lungs, um, tore all the ligaments in my left knee, shattered the tibia plateau in my right knee and my foot. So, yeah, I wasn't moving anywhere. I was getting spoon-fed. Oh, man. Um, But I thought when the physio came in and I'd had the bulk of the surgeries, and she said, if you can start moving your knee, we'll get you to start standing. Sorry, I think that just put it in perspective (laughs) for me, like how lucky you are to be alive. Well, and that's what it is. That's That's what hit me. I was lucky to be alive. And I really, it never occurred to me to be any different than that. Yeah, I met someone recently who she tripped and fell the last four steps. It wasn't even four. It was like the last two steps on a staircase, quadriplegic. Holy shit. I knew I was going to be able to live an independent life. And Mm. that's what a lot of people do not get. Independence is this huge thing a lot of us take for granted for. And I knew that I was going to be able to get my independence back. And that's, I think that was a big goal for me. But initially standing and giving my brother a hug goodbye Mm. that was the first goal that I set and I kind of needed it to be something so monumental I needed I didn't tell my brother but I sort of needed it to be something where it's like okay I've attached my brother to this goal Mm -hmm. and I'll do anything for him and do the physio exercises and not just sit in bed and feel sorry for myself I'm like no I'm going to do this geez and I thought doing bloody five breaths in downward dog was bad like that's, (laughs) that's put that in perspective a little bit what was it like, though, that moment that – because your brother obviously didn't know the goal that you'd set, yeah. which is just – like, I love that. Like, that's – I'm always one of those people I love surprising 
people, like yeah. just adding what I can to a moment. Yeah. Um, and he came in and the physios were there and they had the walking aid. Yeah. Um, and he was just like, wait, wait, what's, what's going on? Yeah. He's like, are you, you going to stand? <laughs> and um, like I got up and mum's like, you need like pushes him. like, you need to go over. And we're not like a big family who's like cries all the time and this and yeah. that. It's probably the closest like that's probably the most emotion I've ever seen out of my brother. So the, the photo I have that's on my Instagram. Um, yeah, it's the two photos of me standing and giving my brother a hug. And then the last one is um, 900 days later. Mm. And that's at the Rio Paralympics after I got my silver medal. And that I walked over. That's only 900 days later. Yeah, I ran into the grand. I went up into the grandstands and gave him a hug. You know, like, you're getting me today. When I, do, when I do my swimming and things, you know, it's an incredibly... Um, you know, it's all on your own. I'm the one swimming the laps, but you know, my family, they do everything but swim the laps. And even though it's, you know, in a way it's all on me and it's all individual and all that sort of thing. But when I hit that wall and I see my time, the first thing I do is look for my family. Really? Like there's not even an instinct of just letting it sink in and letting my, it's just, it, they're always right there that that first thought that come in because you just, mm. and you know, it doesn't have to be a biological family can be anyone who is close enough to you that is yeah. just there and supports your you. people your people yeah it's like your your tribe yeah i really love that and so it's like oh. those those moments that it's just like Ugh. yeah it's literally standing and giving my hug my brother a hug that's what got me out of bed i mean obviously you ended up choosing to amputate from below the knee mm-hmm. How did you go about making that decision? And then I'll get to the next question I have for you. So when I woke up, they had amputated my foot. Already, like that, that had happened. That was gone. So yeah. that had to happen because it had exploded inside. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. So the doctor said he could have he could have fixed it. He could have put it back together. But I had torn through all the nerves. And he talked to my parents about doing a below knee amputation. Mm-hmm. But mum said, no, that's her decision. Right. You know, that's for her and so my options were to keep what I had, in which case they would have had to do a skin graft to cover the wound and they would fuse my ankle. So basically like... It wouldn't move. Yeah, fill the joint with like glue and make it stick. So I would have had like a limp. And partial Jesus. foot prosthetics, because they're not a one size foot all, depends mm-hmm. how much foot you have left. Um, they're not particularly advanced because it's like a case by case basis. Whereas when the doctor said you can go to a below knee, which they recommended, uh-huh. they said you will have so much more mobility. If I'd kept what it was, I would have been at risk for things like osteomyelitis, which is like a bone disease and mm-hmm. they would have had to amputate later. And so it would have been like infections and disease. I would have been much higher for, I wouldn't have been able to swim. Um, and also like the risk of wearing through the skin graft. If the skin doesn't take, if the skin's like, Nope, don't want to stick here. Or you can just like wear through it, like if you get too many blisters and things. And so it's like all these complications if I kept my ankle. And I was like, no thanks. So when they said I'd have more mobility for below knee, I was Mm -hmm. like, done. For me, I had that gut feeling. Before I went into that surgery, my foot was all still bandaged up. But I remember just sort of touching the bottom of my leg and just sort of being like, oh, I'll never have this sensation again. Wow, so you actually like sort of said goodbye to that yeah. part of you. It's, it's scary. You never know like empirically. You're never like 110% like, yes, let's take yeah. off some more body parts. Um, but you've got this sort of feeling you're like, I think this is going to be what's right for me. 
Now, my second question for you leads into the last one I have, which is around sort of, it's not just you who is affected from the accident. It's like throwing that pebble into a pond and just Mm -hmm. watching those ripples move out and then they move back in, you know. Not everyone survives an accident like you Mm -hmm. did. Yeah. And there would be so many people who have heard your story and just think exactly the way you think. Like, you're so lucky to be here. Like, I've got a daughter that had this. Or Mm. what if... In another lifetime, you hadn't survived this fall. Mm. If you could have said anything to your parents about what they would do afterwards, what would it have been? What would you have said to them? There's been a few times my dad actually said he recorded a journal during those few months and he said he'd let me look at them one day. I haven't actually brought it up with him, but I would like to see. One thing he said when he had to go over and empty my room out, like pack up my room and all that sort of thing. And he said he just remembered thinking how, if I had died, how horrible that would have been, you know, to have to pack up all my things. The only other time I ever asked him is like, I'm an organ donor. And I know that mum's got some reservations about um, that, but they always ask the next of kin, or they used to, I think they've just changed it. And I said to dad, I'm like, would you, if I had died, would you have respected that? And he said, absolutely. I think like if I hadn't survived, it's that question of you want answers, you want clarity, you want to know. But even if I got those answers now, I don't think it would change anything. If we had followed it up, it would have been putting all this time and effort into something that wasn't going to change. Pressing charges wasn't going to give me my leg back. And it would have been all this time and money spent mm. on something that wouldn't change the outcome. But I knew that my parents weren't going to let me live life without a leg. You know, we would yeah. get our stuff together to know that I could get a, um, a prosthetic. So making that decision, it was really difficult. But two and a half years later, I was sitting on the couch with dad. And I said, I was like, if we'd gone through the legal system, we would still be going through it now. And instead, we were sitting there looking at my silver medal from the Paralympics. Like I said, I did struggle a lot with not knowing what happened. And it meant, you know, understanding that I might never get might not ever get any answers. But knowing that it wasn't going to change anything. Because putting all that energy and effort into things that I could change, it was about looking at what what can I change and what can't I change. I can't change the fact Very that I lost my leg. It's gone. What I've learned about myself and what I've accomplished, who I am and who I am in my body and how I feel, and I owe it all to that, so I wouldn't change it. The way that accident has brought my family together, and I think they would have wanted to know what happened, but whether or not that would have made it any better. There's actually one girl that I'd met in the class um, came in to see my mum and just said, look, I've only just met your daughter, but I was in class with her last week and she was happy. She was so friendly um, and a beautiful girl. And I'm so sorry this has happened. And for a family who's been told this could have been a potential suicide, Mm. mum said that just meant everything. That's what they would have wanted to know is that the image of their daughter was the correct image. Yeah, that they got the right. And I think that's what they would have wanted yeah, to know. True. And, that's um, very true. If I could have passed anything on to them, it just would have been simply that I want the best for them and whatever that would be, you know. The yeah. first things they said to me when I woke up was that they love me. It wasn't, <sighs> you're in trouble or that we did this or, yeah. or this is what happened. It was the first thing, like, they were just saying, they're going, we love you, we love you, we're here and we love you. That's pretty incredible. And I guess the last thing that I would love to know, um, and I'm sure you all want to know, is... What can outsiders do? 
Like we're just watching it happen. Mm. We're like spectating. We are the ripples of that yeah. pe- that proverbial pebble that's been thrown so in the pond. So number one, you can all watch the Paralympics and get behind disability sport. <laughs> I'm already doing that. I love it. We need so much more um, support and just, can I just like, say, get our community to grow. <laughs> why the hell is it not televised? Yeah. Oh like my it really God. drives me crazy. Like when, like even just the tennis, for example, the Australian Open, yep. they had all those wins and losses mm. for all the able-bodied people. And then friggin' Dylan Alcott goes in there yeah, and smashes <laughs> it. Yeah. I love that guy. He's and proper batshit what, crazy. What he's I'm, so cool. Yeah, he's awesome. Yeah. And what I've learned as well is, you know, watching watching someone go down a hill, that's impressive. Watching someone do it on one leg. Holy oh, hell. Like, it's like, it's something else. Watching him, like the way he moves that wheelchair yeah, yeah. and just flies. Oh, by the way, wheelchairs are not easy to move because I've got one. No, like, I just, they're really oh hard. Oh my God, they're so hard. But trying to turn a wheelchair in a circle. Oh yeah. Not easy. You I use your body. It's yeah. not just your arms. It's your body. And I it, got over it in the end. I just it pick becomes, it up and move it. Yeah, it becomes part of you. But they're so expensive as well. Yeah. So it's um, incredibly hard. But I think something I learned from being in hospital was I had a lot of people sort of say, I didn't know if I should contact you. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to do. So they didn't. And, yeah. you know, with full respect to what was going on in their lives and yeah. what was happening it's sad that I lost a lot of friendships there, but I understand it's a hard situation for anyone to be in. So any of those people that walked away from you in that time, what would you say to them now? Oh, that's a hard one. Some of them I'm still like, you know, if I ran into in the street, that would be fine. And, you know, life's just, you, you know, you do naturally fade out of a, like, uh, friendships and relationships and you, you move on and things. So, you know, some things you can just look back for what they were and leave them in the past, I guess. But I think the biggest piece of advice I can give is it doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter what you do. If you do something, yeah, do it. You know, if you hear that a friend is in hospital, something's happened, um, you know, going to see them is always number one. Yeah. And I think a phone call or a text message means a lot more than a Facebook comment. Yeah. (laughs) Um, you know, and I just had all these people, and you might be able to relate, you know, you recently announced on social media about your relationship. Yeah. And, and you feel this pressure to have to update everybody. Uh. How do you update everybody to tell them that you've lost a leg? And you don't oh, even yeah. and you don't even understand how it's happened. And you have to update everybody because I was a few people were like, oh Mon's injured herself again, she's in hospital, ha ha ha. And I'm like, mm. you know, how do you announce that? Because, and everyone, I was just feeling all this pressure because people were like, what's going on? What's happened? And having grown up in Canberra, I was now in Melbourne. It was horrible to try and navigate that. I would get messages from people I hadn't heard from since like year 10 being like, oh my God, what the hell happened? Like, what's none of your business? And it was the people who bluntly asked like, what happened or mm. what's going on? They're the people that I would get a bit frustrated with. The people who, even if I hadn't heard from them in ages, would contact me and be like, hey, how are you going? Yeah. Or yeah, I've heard that you're in hospital, wishing you the best, hope you're okay. Yeah. They're the people I had time for. Yeah. But if you, you just you do something or you say something, and you can tell when someone's genuine. Yeah. If someone comes up to me in the street and says, hi, can I ask you about your leg? Like You can tell that they're being genuine and they're curious, and that curiosity isn't a sin. And I've, I've got so much time for those people. The ones that are just sort of stop and stare with their mouths hanging out and, yeah. you know, can be really rude. Or the parents who just, like, pull their kids away and be like, don't stare. And literally I've seen a parent pull their kid into a pole <laughs> to get away from me. 
And I pissed myself. I pissed myself laughing. And my friend's like, Mon, you shouldn't laugh that loudly. I'm like, I don't care because that was rude. Yeah. Like, let your kid come and ask me a question. Yeah. It's cute. It's gorgeous. Kids, and are, kids are just curious, man. Exactly. Like, and, and it's fine. Yeah. And it's okay. And if I turned around and said, I'm sorry, I've got to get somewhere. I don't have time. Mm. A parent can explain that. Yeah. You know, and so if you're genuine and if you've got good intent, you know, if you're not yeah. coming from being like, oh, gossip, let's find out what happened to them. Mm. You know, people who put in some sort of effort. Yeah. I remember. And I remember there was, you know, one or two people who just sort of vanished. And I was like, well, hold, what happened? And, you know, some friends would be like, oh, it's really hard for them. I met this person like a week ago and they came in to give something to my parents. Or I only just met this person on campus this year and they've just come in or people were bringing me in birthday cakes. Like my friend, like I had so many people turn up for my birthday I had cards everywhere. And I was just like these little acts of kindness. I was like, and they, they were what made the people who disappeared look really bad. If you can just do something, yeah, you know, it means the world because you feel quite lonely in those moments. Yeah. And it does, you don't have to be in hospital without a leg or have had some traumatic thing. It can be, um, it can be anything. At all. And if you are that person going through something traumatic, it's okay to reach out. It's okay to send that message because even if you think someone's life is perfect, and we often have that mistake of thinking that because of social media, I guarantee you they've been through something. We've Mm. all been through something that has made us grateful or realized how much we need to be there for each other. And you'll be surprised if you reach out and ask for help, there'll be someone there. So then what was it like the day that you won that medal? (laughs) I was sick. I wasn't well. It was day eight of competition. I was not feeling well. I'd had a a terrible cold. And all I could keep telling myself was, I just need to do my best. And with the story that I had, it was only, it was 900 days, apparently. So two and a half years. People were watching. People were interested. And so all my friends and family were invested because it was, you know, this way of showing everyone how much had turned it around, how much everyone had helped me get there. So I had a cold which was pretty typical. Like I said, I used to always get sick, but I was handling myself a lot better. And if I came forth and got a PB, then I would be happy because like a personal best time, you you can't do better than your best. Mm. And I'd made sure in the media and everything, I'd never sort of been like, I'm going for gold or Mm -hmm. because I didn't want not winning gold to look like a disappointment. Because for me, the fact that I was there was huge. I was fulfilling my childhood dream, but in a bit of a different way. Yeah. <laughs> so it was incredibly um, confronting mentally and emotionally as well to be like, I'm at a Paralympics representing my country. This is what I've dreamed of, but I dreamed of going to an Olympics and what I'd had to do to get where I was, was just very confronting. So when I walked out for that final, like I had tears in my eyes and I was like, you can't cry now. Like you have to race. Like I told my parents, I'm like, I can't look at you up in the stands because I'll lose it. Yeah. So, um, you know, I walked out and even though I wasn't feeling well, I was like, just cause I don't feel well today. doesn't mean that that last 14 years of training is it's counting useless. for nothing. Yeah. yeah. It's still there. It's still worth something. Yeah. And all I have to do is get up and just do my best. I was just screaming at myself in my head to keep pushing. And it was like, every time I got to a tumble turn, push now, go hard now, because you have to do it now. You're not going to finish this and be like, oh, I can have another crack later on. This This is is it. it." And it was that urgency um, to really give absolutely everything I had in that moment. And to know that it would be over soon. 
Like I would be home and in bed eating chocolate, sleeping. I could rest when it was over and that yeah. rest was going to come. Yeah. I think I always knew that through my recovery, through everything. Time doesn't stop. That last 50 meters, all I could think of was my family up in the stands. It's all I could think of. And I knew I could just like, you can't hear anyone cheering for you, but you can feel the noise and you can feel that atmosphere. And that stadium was packed with crazy loud Brazilian people and you could just feel it. And I was just pushing and pushing so hard. And when I hit that wall and I saw this number two next to my name and there, there is a great photo of it. I'm just like gobsmacked. I was ecstatic because I knew that, I had no energy left. I just had, I was spent. I had nothing left. That was my absolute best effort on that day. Two weeks before when I wasn't sick, maybe I could have done something different. Yeah. You know, um, a few days later, probably would have gone even slower. Like it was, that was everything I had. And I found out that between myself at second and fourth place was less than half a second. And between third and fourth place was 0.03. You know, standing on the podium or having that on TV for everyone to see. It wasn't all that. It was knowing that I had dedicated every fiber of myself to something and I had made the most of my body. I'd made the most of everything I had because it's not just a sport isn't just a physical thing. And it doesn't have to be sport. It can be any sort of hobby. It can be, you know, your computering, your academics, musical instruments. But knowing that I'd completely dedicated myself to something and put my heart and soul into it and seeing it pay off yeah, and doing that for my family to show them that I was still capable. Yeah, It was really proving to everyone I am still capable. Wow. And I think up until then, or like you said, like how it affects your family, I remember in hospital I'd had this conversation with mum. We'd got into a bit of a fight and I'd sort of said, I was like, you know, you get to leave this hospital at the end of every day. I'm stuck here and it's worse for me. And I realised in that moment that, one, I was going to win every argument for the rest of my life, but two, that I was the worst daughter ever because I'd made it, because I really hadn't validated how mum was feeling in that whole situation. And it was my first year on the team we had to write down three things about ourselves as a get to know you activity. Yeah. And the three things I could think of were things like this time last year, I had two legs and I've been in a coma for, I was in a coma for a week. And I realized that no one on this team gave a shit about that because everyone on that team had their own story. Everyone on that team, you know, they've lost their leg from a tractor accident or from chicken pox or yeah, they were born without their arm or they've got a, um, they're going to be fully blind in a few years. You know, there's all these insane stories on that team. And that's not why we're there. We're there because we're athletes, because we're dedicated and motivated and swimming is our chosen sport that we want to excel in. It's got nothing to do with the fact that we're disabled. We're just, we're on that para team so that it's a fair competition. And I realized how much I was orientating myself around that accident. And I thought, For 19 years, I introduced myself as Monique Murphy without that accident. Who was I? I was controlled, well, not really controlled, but how much I orientated myself around that accident. And you made the story your life instead of your life. Yeah. And you have to. You've got to be very um, self orientated to be able to rebuild yourself and figure out who you are and to get your life back on track. Mm. But there is also a time you get to where you go, well, now I've got to move on from that. And I've got, le- like, yeah. 
for me now, that was a tragic accident that happened. Yeah. It's not something I'm tethered to. Because I remember being like, oh, next week's the anniversary. And I remember being like, oh, that'll be a great Instagram post for your anniversary. And it got to about like nine o'clock that night. And I was like, oh my God. You completely forgot. I've forgotten about it. And it was so nice. Yeah, refreshing. Yeah. And I think winning that medal, um, in part, it really allowed me to put that ribbon on top of that chapter of my life. You know, just it was that thing Mm. was like, I am capable. I can set a goal and achieve it at a world level yeah and show my you know and give that to my family and my friends and you know like i said swimming's my chosen sport but it can be anything at all yeah you can choose anything at all you want to succeed at and um for me it was just it wasn't the end of a journey it was the start it was like all right this is where i'm starting (laughs) and i'm starting up here because i am that capable like when you're in that hospital bed and everything feels like shit Mm. Um, or when you're curled up in doing it and you're doing a, having a bad day, eating your ice cream, watching Netflix. Time isn't waiting for you. It, but it's not going to last forever. Time yeah. is going to – the next day will come. And yeah. sometimes that's all I need is to know that I can go to sleep, like at the end of the day, go to sleep, re, like recharge, reset, and wake up to a new day. Sometimes that's what I need. I'll just – like I'll get to midday and be like, no, nope, I've had enough of this day. I just need to curl up in a ball – get through to the end of it and yeah. then just have my sleep is like my reset yeah. because tomorrow will come. See, I told you she's amazing. How can you not absolutely love her as a human being? Mon Murphy works with young women all over Australia as well as young men as well, actually, helping them achieve being the best possible person that they can be. She uses her story as a way of helping them see that they have to be careful with the body that they've been given because you only get one. Imagine if she wasn't here today and we hadn't heard that story and we weren't having amazing moments of new ways of being and acting. Look, you got to follow her. She's on social media. She's Mon.Murphy. She is a Paralympic silver medalist and public speaker. Her website is moniquemermaidmurphy.com and she bloody well is a mermaid. Give to the Paralympians. They need your help to get to the next games, which I believe are in Japan. These guys deserve to go. They work so hard like I know our Olympians they train hard but if you think about it the Paralympians have to train 10 times harder because they are not 100% able-bodied they're going to have their own mental things to get through which all athletes have but they're going to have an intense physical challenge to get through as well I I don't know look I'm biased I love them if you would like to give to them go to the paralympics.org.au it's really easy to find their website and then just go to the support tab and that way you can help all of the teams involved thank you again for joining the one movement get in touch via the one together podcast at gmail.com or on my Facebook which is literally just Heather Maltman malt man like the drink and the man <laughs> just kind of sounds like a superhero we also share loads of extras there but we also share them on my Instagram page which is Heather underscore Maltman. if you have a story to share or would like to ask a question we love hearing from you so please send us an email or get on touch on the socials This is the One Together podcast reminding you that one is in fact not the loneliest number. I'm Heather Maltman. We'll talk to you again at 3pm on Monday. But until then, love hard, respect much, and always pay it forward.